Please, will you turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, it's quite a long chapter. Um, really not a pleasant chapter, but it's in God's Word. And so we are going to read it through and then spend our time considering it. So let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 13 from verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart." So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, for I have commanded you, be courageous and valiant. 
So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And, so, and as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Well, this is, maybe surprisingly, um, this is God's word, uh, and it is the portion uh, that we are looking at today. Let's just come to a word of prayer just briefly, commit this time to the Lord. Father, we, we do come to you this morning as we look at this portion of Scripture a dark portion of scripture filled with so much evil. We need your help as we do every week, but particularly today, to understand that which you would have us to learn from this passage. So won't you help me now as I seek to unpack what is here for us to learn. Won't you be with our hearts as we receive it. And may you ultimately point us to our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and his name alone. Amen. Well, there are some stories in the Bible that never made it into the top 100 stories for Sunday school. And chapter 13 of 2 Samuel is certainly one of those. The story of Amnon raping his sister Tamar, then being murdered by his brother Absalom is probably not one of the stories that you would have expected to find in the Bible. And it is certainly not one which you might have ever chosen to sit and listen to a sermon on. And yet as we come to 2 Samuel 13 today, we do indeed find it in the Bible and we must submit ourselves to God's word as we just ask the question, why is this story in the Bible? And yet as much as we don't expect such a, a dark story to be in the Bible, what we discover is that this story is very much part of our everyday life in this world today particularly in the context of South Africa. We live in a country where the absence of godly men has led to a society where rape, violence, murder, and the disintegration of the family unit has reached an all-time high. Recent government statistics, which are undoubtedly conservative, report that on average there are about 43,000 reported rape cases per annum in South Africa, and approximately 21,000 reported murder cases per annum. And the statistics also reveal that about 70% of the rape cases in South Africa took place in either the home of the victim or in the home of the perpetrator, implying that they knew each other. And so as we come to what at face value appears to be a rather shocking chapter in the Bible and one that perhaps we would rather just skip over and move on, we need to face the realization that the events of this chapter are a tragic reality for tens of thousands of people in our country every year. Now what is perhaps even more shocking then is to realize that the contents of this chapter have become the basis 
for almost every top-rated movie and TV series which most of our country binge-watches every single night of the year. Just think about the degree to which every TV show and movie is filled with, saturated with lust, sexual provocation, adultery, fornication, rape, violence, hatred, and murder. We cannot come to church on Sunday and pretend to be shocked at the contents of this chapter of the Bible when this is what we watch for entertainment multiple times a week. And so as we ask, why is this chapter in the Bible? I think at least one answer is found in that this passage is a mirror of our society. And in being a mirror of our society, this chapter asks us a question this morning, which is there on the screen before you. Where are the godly men? Now before we look at that question this morning, firstly on a human and on an emotional level, surely our hearts connect most naturally with Tamar in this sad account. She is, in essence, the central character in this chapter. Everything that happens is in some way connected to her. Tamar is truly the victim in this terrible account, and she represents all the young girls and all the women in our society who are the victims of domestic violence and abuse and sexual assault. Her story is tragic from beginning to end, and the text is absolutely clear that none of this is her fault. She is the victim of Amnon's lust and violent abuse. She is the victim of Jonadab's craftiness. She is the victim of her father David's pathetic weakness. And she is the victim of her brother Absalom's ambition and hatred. Not only is Tamar an innocent victim, but she is a righteous victim in both her character and her conduct and her speech. We see in her conduct that she was an obedient daughter to her father David. She was a caring sister to her apparently sick brother. We see in her character, she was a woman of purity. She was a virgin who carried herself with, with dignity and, and modesty. She wore a, a long robe with, with sleeves so as to keep herself pure for marriage one day. We see in her speech that on the only two occasions in this whole chapter when anyone speaks any biblical truth or wisdom, it's Tamar. Look at verse 12, as, as Ammon takes hold of her and he pulls her into bed with, her, with him, she says in verse 12, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. The law of God, the Mosaic law, forbid not only rape, but incest. And she says, do not do this outrageous thing. It means evil, wicked, disgraceful. As for me, where would I carry my shame, and, and as for you, you would be one of those outrageous or vile, wicked fools in Israel. Now therefore speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Again, even after raping her, as he tries to send her away as a piece of trash, Tamar still speaks God's truth in righteousness to him. She says, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Tamar's story has no happy ending in this tragedy, as is sadly the case for so many thousands of women in our country today. There is no justice for Tamar from her king. There is no comfort from her father. There is no vindication from her family. There's no acceptance from her society. All we are told is that she spent the rest of her life as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. As our hearts go out to Tamar in the story, the question which has boiled up in me this week is, how could this happen? And not just once as, a, as an event of terrible depravity and wickedness recorded in the Bible 3,000 years ago. 
but as a daily event occurring over 120 times a day in our country. How on earth can this be? And I think the Bible gives us the answer to that question, which is the title of the sermon this morning. Where, where are the godly men? The tragedy of this story is the sad reality of godless men who are left unrestrained in a godless world. And I think we can even see this shouting out to us from the pages of Scripture. Please turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 3. So we've got Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, Chronicles. So just a couple books on to 1 Chronicles chapter 3. Tamar, as the daughter of the king, uh, is only mentioned one other time in all of Scripture. And it's here in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. What we have in chapter 3 of 1 Chronicles is a long list of the sons of David. These are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn, Amnon. Amnon the rapist from our passage. And then we have the long list of sons from all his different wives. Now look down at verse 9. All these were David's sons. Besides the sons of the concubines, which aren't even given the honor to be mentioned, and Tamar was their sister. Now, apart from Solomon in that list, there is nothing good said about any one of David's sons in the Scriptures. And even Solomon himself was a miserable failure of a man, despite being so highly blessed by God with great wisdom. And so as the list of King David's sons is given, God reminds us that all of these men had Tamar as their sister. Surely David had many other daughters, but only one is mentioned. And I think the point of 1 Chronicles 3, 9, to put her name at the end of the list of sons is this, where are the godly men? All these sons of David were brothers of Tamar, a godly, pure, righteous, beautiful woman who was violated and discarded and who lived the rest of her life in desolation because she was the victim of a godless generation of men. So we're going to come back to Tamar at the end. But for the rest of our time today, I have the unpleasant job of looking at the list of godless men in the story and to see what we can learn from God's word for ourselves and our society today. So turn back to chapter 13. We're not going to kind of work our way through the narrative as we sometimes would. I'm going to just focus on uh, the godly, godless men. And the first godless man I want us to consider um, is, is Amnon. Amnon uh, was David's firstborn son. Amnon was the rightful heir to the throne of King David. And the first thing that we see about Amnon is that he was a false lover. Now when we consider this account, remember David had at least eight wives, and so we need to keep our wits about us as we consider the family tree of David. Amnon was David's eldest son born to Ahinoam. And Tamar is David's only daughter that's mentioned in Scripture, born to a, a different wife called Maacah. Maacah had two children, Absalom and Tamar. And so Absalom and Tamar were thus half-siblings or step-siblings of Amnon. They shared the same dad, different mothers. And so if this account then of rape and murder is not evil enough on its own, in the story it's, it's compounded by the sin of incest, as Amnon rapes his own sister, and fratricide as Absalom murders his own brother. But we are told in verse 1 and 4 that Amnon loved Tamar, who was very beautiful. But very soon we see that this was false love, because he was only obsessed with her because of the sexual lust in his heart. Verse 2 is quite shocking that his obsession for her led to him being so tormented inside by not having her that he became ill, for she was a virgin. And look what it says, it was impossible for him to do anything to her. 
I mean, the alarm bells are screaming at us here. Amnon had one thing and one thing only on his mind to pursue sexual relationships with Tamar. Young people, I know Ed Sheeran wasn't around in Bible times, but Amnon could not get the words of his song, Shape of You, out of his depraved head especially as the song repeats again and again, oh, I'm in love with your body, I'm in love with the shape of you. This is what our young people are singing today. It's what Amnon had going on in his mind. There is absolutely nothing of true love in these verses, but only the sick, perverted lust of a godless man who in reality was no man at all. The text reveals the reality that Amnon, despite being the oldest son of King David, he was just a spoiled brat who moped around in self-pity while feeding his disgraceful lust for his own sister. Now, where does such a godless man turn at times like this? Well, he turns to his godless friends, of course. And so we see that Jonadab comes along and he feeds Amnon's selfish pride and he, he comes up with a plan which from the beginning had the recipe of rape written all over it. And we don't need to unpack the details of what transpired to suffice it to say that it ended up in this violent overpowering of Tamar and her rape, proving that Amnon was not only a false lover, but he was an entirely false man. The biblical definition or understanding of a man in God's sight is a male who not only provides for his wife and family, but he protects his wife and family and he leads his wife and family to follow God. And then in the context of marriage, when such a man and a godly woman come together under God's blessing, the beauty of the sexual union between a husband and a wife is then honored by God and greatly enjoyed by the couple. Yes, Amnon may have had the biology and the hormones of an adult male, but he was nothing more than a sick, perverted, selfish boy who had no idea what it meant to be a man. He had no idea of what it meant to be a faithful husband, no idea what it meant to be a, a protector and a provider, no idea how to engage a young woman with honor and respect, no idea how to lead a woman under God. He had no idea what it meant to truly love a woman. And so all he could do was to overpower his sister and rape her in his violent, selfish lust. And so verse 15 may come as a shock to us, but perhaps not, for it simply exposes the true heart of Amnon all along. After raping her, we read in verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her literally, get up and get out. When Tamar refused, because his dismissing of her not only violated her even further, but violated the law of God, which held Amnon accountable and responsible for her rape. We see that Amnon calls in his servant and says, put this woman out of my presence and lock the door. The Hebrew actually doesn't even have the word woman there. It literally, he said, put this out of my sight. Men, this is what pornography does. This is what pornography produces in your hearts. It reduces women to be nothing more than objects of your evil lusting, which you then discard as worthless when you're done with them. Amnon grew up watching his father David take one wife after another to fulfill his sexual lusts, and then he discarded one after the other as he moved on to the next and the next, and the next, and then countless concubines. The incident of 
David and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah was not this blip on David's radar, this sudden falling. It was the fruit of a pattern of unrestrained lust over many years, and Amnon grew up for probably 30 years viewing David's objectification of women, and so Amnon's objectification of Tamar and her rape and then discarding her like dirt was the fruit of him watching his father's porneia for years and years and years as it continued to the next generation. The real tragedy of this account is that this is what happens over a hundred times a day, every day in this country. A sick, perverted, godless, self-centered, spoiled, mommy and daddy pampered boys living inside of men's bodies prove themselves to be false lovers and false men as they forcefully take what they have no right to take from young girls and innocent women. Can I also just say something at this point, and I do so cautiously for fear of being misunderstood, because this is certainly not the context of our story here, but I think it's relevant. What about consensual sex outside of marriage? It's not what happened here. But that is what happens all over society today. We live on this side of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s where, where sexual freedom has been allowed to, to run rampant, so we are told. Sex outside of marriage is, is no longer simply a problem of men who rape or sleep with prostitutes, but it's now participated in and, and celebrated across the world by women who, who willingly pursue and give themselves to men in consensual, in consensual sex outside of marriage. This is the norm today. I don't need to tell you that. It starts in high school. It's in every movie. It's in every TV show. It's in every love song. Can I say to any young ladies to any woman in this church involved in sexual relations outside of marriage, the fact that you give your consent to the sexual advances of a man does not change the fact that you have gone to bed with Amnon. And the day will come when he will hate you and discard you. Any man who is not prepared to commit to you, ladies, in the covenant of marriage before God to take on all the responsibilities of providing for you and protecting you and leading you under God, no matter how much he tells you he loves you, especially this week on Valentine's Day, he's an undercover Amnon who will eventually begin to hate you more than he loves you, and in the end, he will discard you. He's a false lover because he is a false man. Enough of Amnon. Um, let's move on to the next godless man in the list, uh, which is the slippery, slimy character of Jonadab. We introduced to Jonadab in verse 3, who as a friend and a cousin of Amnon and Tamar, he squirms his way into the story as the mastermind behind the rape of Tamar. Verse 3 tells us that Jonadab was very crafty, shrewd. It's, it's the same word translated in the Bible as wise, but, but this is a false wisdom. This is a, a streetwise cunning and craftiness of a man who, who worked every angle to manipulate people for his own gain. Jonadab knew that Amnon was next in line to the throne, and so if he could get into the prince's good books... By giving him what his perverted heart desired, well then, he would stand a good chance of being given great power and influence in the government of King Amnon in the years to come. Jonadab's plan reveals really the heart of Satan himself in the cunning and deception to lure Tamar into Amnon's bedroom under the guise of him being physically weak, only so that in that moment he can overpower her in strength and rape her. As evil and as sick as the act of Amnon was against Tamar, so too just as evil and sick was the heart of the man behind it all. But we also see that the, the text introduces Jonadab to us as, as a friend of Amnon. But later we see he proved only to be a false friend. 
at the end of the story, after Absalom has murdered Amnon, the message gets back to David that all of his sons have been murdered. Look at verse 31 with me, chapter 13, verse 31. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. Suddenly who appears? Jonadab, the son of Shimea, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Jonadab is, is slippery, he's a slimy, godless snake who proves himself to not only have been complicit in the rape of Tamar, but also complicit in the murder of Amnon because he knew all along from the very beginning what Absalom had planned. This so-called friend of Amnon in the end proved to be his enemy as he sided with Absalom when he realized that Amnon was not going to be the one to take over the throne of David. Let's move on. The next character of godlessness in this account is Absalom. Absalom reveals his failures as being a false brother and a false son. Firstly, we see him as a false brother towards Tamar, his sister. Tamar leaves the house, putting ashes on her head, tearing the long sleeves off her robe as a sign that she's been raped. And she runs through the streets, weeping bitterly, only to encounter Absalom, who seemingly immediately knows what has happened. And he offers her no real comfort whatsoever. Now the question is, if he knew what had happened, why did he not protect his sister? Why did he not respond immediately by taking this matter to King David? Why did he not report the matter to the godly prophet Nathan? But no, in his response, we see another man who was really only looking out for himself as he saw a way to ultimately get rid of his rival to the throne. And so Absalom was also then a false brother to Amnon as he patiently waited two years and he plotted a very similarly elaborate scheme to lure Amnon now to a sheep shearing party. That was a thing, obviously. And, and so lures him. Who knows if maybe crafty cousin Jonadab wasn't behind this whole thing, but he lures him so that he can present a meal before Amnon, get him drunk, only this time it was not Amnon who did the violating, but Absalom's servants who violently murdered Amnon. But really the story of Absalom is only beginning, and this chapter just hints at this by actually placing Absalom right up front and center. Look at verse 1. The whole chapter about Amnon and Tamar actually starts in verse 1 with Absalom. Interesting. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and then the story carries on. Why introduce the story by bringing Absalom into the mix? Well, the writer's wanting us to see that Absalom is actually the real focus, because this chapter marks the beginning of the collapse of King David's reign and the rise of Absalom to overthrow his father, David. And so as David's son proves to be a false son, he flees then to Talmai, the king of Geshur, who happened to be his grandfather, by the way, because David married Maaka, who was the daughter of this Canaanite king Geshur. More alarm bells should be ringing at this moment. For three years, Absalom stayed in exile with this Canaanite king, planning his coup, how to overthrow his father David as king. So not only was Absalom a false brother, but he was about to prove himself as a false son. And then finally today, there's one other man who fails miserably in this chapter, and that is David. In the midst of all the horrific tragedy of this chapter, there is a constant hope that David will come riding in on his white horse and save the day. But to our dismay, the great warrior King David has become nothing more than a sentimental wimp. We see this right at the beginning when his eldest son, Amnon, who was a prince, who was heir to the throne with many servants and chefs to cook his food, says to David when he comes to visit him on his fake sickbed, Daddy David, please send Tamar to come and cook food in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David should have smelt the rotten eggs. But instead, he sends his beautiful 
innocent daughter into the very den of this ravenous wolf. Maybe you're saying, I'm being too harsh on David. Well, let's assume that David was fully duped by Amnon in this incident. But after everything transpired in the rape of Tamar, we see David's real failure as a father in verse 21. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. That's it. That's it. David was angry. But he did nothing. He did nothing. He did not go and console his daughter and comfort her and bring her into the safety of his home to care for her for the rest of his life. He did nothing. He left her in the care of her false brother, Absalom. In doing this, David proved to be a false father to Tamar. He had not protected her before, and he did not care for her after. But David's failure as a father is seen also in that he did nothing to Amnon. Why? Why would he be so angry about Tamar's rape and yet do nothing to Amnon? Well, we are given two clues. One is from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament from around 300 BC. And it has a longer version of verse 21, which reads as follows. When King David heard the whole story, he was very angry, but he would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. Now, it's unlikely we're not sure whether this longer version is original to the Hebrew or not, but it certainly indicates what was generally believed to be David's failure by the third century BC. But also later on in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, we are told of David's weakness as a father towards his sons. Another one of his sons, Adonijah, tried to set himself up as king. And we, <clears throat> excuse me, and we read in 1 Kings 1, verse 6, that David never at any time displeased his son by asking him, why have you done this and why have you done that? And he was also a very handsome man, born next after Absalom. What's it saying to us? David was so caught up with the, the beauty and, he, and his love for his sons that he never once spoke to them in discipline. Just like Eli in 1 Samuel refused to restrain his sons in their sinful ways, David's love for his sons blinded him to his responsibility to instruct and discipline and restrain his sons. And so David proved to be a false father. But David is much more of a significant figure in the story than just a father because he is also the Lord's anointed king. And this chapter sadly reveals David in this incident of Tamar to be a false king. As, as king over Israel, David was responsible to rule the nations with, with righteousness and justice, to uphold the law of God, to treat people with equity and, and impartiality. But David has been compromised as king. The events that we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 11 are an exact mirror of what has taken place now in chapter 13. David failed in chapter 11 in all the ways that Amnon and Jonadab and Absalom failed in this chapter 13. David took a woman who was not his wife and violated her just as Amnon did. David schemed a deceptive plan just as evil and conniving and destructive as Jonadab's plans. And David executed the murder of Uriah just as Absalom did of Amnon. Now, yes, we know that David was forgiven by God in chapter 12, Psalm 51. He was restored in his relationship to God. But the consequences of his sin left him as a compromised father and as a compromised king. Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. He says, David holds the office of magistrate, one might say, both in his kingdom and in his family. As both father and king, he is charged with maintaining justice, whether he is personally compromised or not. One may understand David's failure to act. One may not, however, excuse it. 
So Amnon remains an unpunished felon. Tamar languishes as damaged goods, and Absalom becomes a seething vigilante. As we look to apply this passage, I'm almost done. Let me just point out that what Ralph Davis mentions here as the consequence of David's failure in this chapter continues exactly the same in our country today. When godly men are nowhere to be found, when there are no godly leaders in our homes and in our government, the perpetrators go unpunished, the victims receive no justice or restitution, and the affected communities become resentful vigilantes. And so we ask again, why is this chapter in the Bible? And I think it's here to show us three things by way of application, and I'll try and just rush through these for the sake of time. Firstly, this world desperately needs godly men. This starts with godly men in the home, husbands of one wife, who love their wives as Christ loved the church, who lead their wives and their families with grace and compassion and, and conviction, the convictions of Jesus himself. Fathers who, who work hard every day in order to provide for the needs of their families and to overflow with generosity to those in need. Fathers who protect, protect their wives and their children from the attacks of Satan and the evil influence of the world we live in. Fathers who love their children with such a deep commitment to shepherd their souls to Christ that they do not shy away from godly discipline and faithful instruction. We need fathers who show their boys what it means to be a godly man. And we need fathers who model for their girls the godly standards for their future husbands. Men, are you that? We need true men who are both strong and gentle. True lovers who are faithful to our wives and, and we keep the marriage bed pure. And true fathers who love and instruct our children in the ways of Christ. But we also need godly men in the church, don't we? We need men who love God and serve God faithfully as pastors and, and elders and deacons and ministry leaders who lead the church with integrity, who, who take seriously the responsibility given by Jesus to us to, to care for and feed the sheep, to protect the flock from the wolves and to lead those entrusted to our care. We need Christian men who are filled with true wisdom, who act as true friends to, to brothers and sisters in Christ and who lead our young people to become true sons and daughters of God. But then we desperately need godly men in society, don't we? As we saw on that missions video, in the workshops, in the fields, in the boardrooms of industry, in the offices and banks of finance, in, in the classrooms of schools and universities, in the hallways of parliament and, and government departments. This country desperately needs godly men to stand up and be counted as true workers and leaders in every sphere of society. Men who oppose injustice, men who oppose violence against women and children. Men who fight for the lives of unborn babies. Men who will stand against the rapid decline of God's purposes for marriage and family. This world desperately needs godly men. But secondly, we learn from this passage that this world desperately needs godly women. Amidst the carnage of this dark chapter of godless men being left to make a mess of the world shines the bright diamond of Tamar a truly godly woman who by God's grace is a symbol of what God desires for all of his people. In all the areas where the men of this story fail miserably, Tamar shines brightly as an example of true beauty and true purity and true righteousness. In the home, in her conduct, in her character, in her speech, in her love for God, in her strength, 
and even in her ultimate submission to God's dark providences in her life. Tamar shows us what this world needs just as much as godly men. Tamar's grace, integrity, inner beauty, honor, wisdom, character, conviction. Ladies, they shine so brightly for you today especially to our young women who are being so bombarded by the superficiality of external beauty and the low standards of the world we live in. Young girls, ladies, this world desperately needs godly women. But lastly, I think this chapter in the is in the Bible to show us that this world desperately needs Jesus. What this chapter reveals more clearly than anything else is that we all need Jesus to rescue us. We all need King David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to step into the story of our lives and to clean up the mess. We need Jesus to forgive us, to care for us, to protect us, to provide for us, to lead us, to discipline us. We need Jesus to be the true father and brother and friend that we will only ever need. So yes, the world needs godly men. Yes, the world needs godly women. But the very best men and the very best women will fail us. We will fail one another and we will all fail God. And so this chapter reveals in a very dark and cold way the devastation of sin. Firstly, our own sin. Just bear with me for two more minutes. Our own sin which defiles, like David and Amnon and Jonadab and Absalom. Sin which deceives, which, which lusts, which connives, which violates, which hates, which brews, which ignores, which plots, which murders. Sins which put me first and everyone else a distant second. We need Jesus to rescue us from our sin. But this chapter also reveals the devastation of sin which is committed against us. Sins which break, which cut, which wound, which grieve, which shame, which disregard, leave deep scars. We need Jesus to come and rescue and redeem us even from the sins which have been committed against us. There really is no light offered to us in this chapter except that the darkness of this chapter causes the light of Jesus in the rest of Scripture to shine so much brighter. Sin defiles, whether it's our own sin or the sin committed against us. Sin leaves us as it left Tamar in verse 21. Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her godless brother for the rest of, his life, of her life. That's what sin does. So is that how you perhaps feel today? Perhaps you feel like a desolate person living in the prison of your own sin. Living in the prison of your own sinful choices. Or perhaps you feel like you're a desolate person living as an empty shell in the prison of sins which other people have committed against you. Abuse, violence, unforgiveness. And no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to escape. Well, this passage is shouting out to us, look to the cross. Jesus has come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so if you're here today and you recognize in your own heart, your own life, the sins and the failures of Amnon and Jonadab and Absalom and David, if you are shamed by your sin, you are broken by the vileness of it, the offense that it is to a holy God, won't you come to Jesus today in repentance? Won't you confess your sins before him? Cry out to him to wash away your sin and your shame and your guilt and to rescue you. And if you are here today and you feel the desolation and shame of Tamar, perhaps you feel the wounds of others against you in your life. And you understand the cry of Tamar in verse 13, where can I go to get rid of my disgrace? The answer is the same. Won't you come to Jesus? 
He removes your sin at the cross and he also removes the shame that you carry and he heals your wounds. Tim Chester tells the story of a young woman who had been the victim of sexual abuse, who every night used to scrub herself in the bath with a scouring pad normally used to clean dirty pots. It was her attempt to get rid of the stain in her soul. Friends of his met her, talked with her, wept with her, took her to the Psalms of Lament, and finally took her to the cross. One day, she bought a cloth. She no longer needed a scouring pad because it was a beautiful sign of her faith that Jesus truly cleanses us. So as I close, I just want to bring up the words that Jesus quoted when he commenced his ministry. And he quoted them from Isaiah 61. This is Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And our response comes from verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Amen. Let's pray. Close in a word of prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, how we need you. Every hour, how we need you. And so we just pray today that this portion of scripture will drive each and every one of us to Jesus. Every one of us is somehow represented in this story of chapter 13. Every one of us needs you. Won't you meet with us wherever you may find us today as we've just sung earlier, just as I am, I come to you. Won't you accept us and forgive us and restore us and heal us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.